Can the United States continue to run free and fair elections amidst a sea of election disinformation? What does the path of the voting wars look like since the disputed 2000 election? How should journalists cover stories like election subversion and deal with those who make claims about elections being stolen or rigged? On Season 3, Episode 4 of the ELB Podcast, we speak with Pam Fessler, the Dean of Journalists on the Democracy Beat, who recently retired as correspondent for NPR. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. Today, we are fortunate to sit down with Pam Fessler. Pam recently retired as correspondent for NPR, where she covered the issues of democracy as well as issues of poverty. She really was one of the very first people who was out there covering these issues, everything from the dispute over the 2000 election through the 2020 election. Pam Fessler, welcome to the ELB podcast. Hi, Rick. Glad to be here. So I thought uh, we could have a conversation. It could be uh, part exit interview uh, since you recently left your perch at NPR covering voting, among uh, many other things. Uh, but also, uh, more importantly, I think, you've been observing elections for quite some time and you've seen changes in American elections. And so I wanted to get your views on that. And I actually wanted to start with this question. Uh, what's changed since you started covering this beat? When did you start covering the beat? And what's changed, say, over the last five to 10 years? Wow. Um, actually, I started covering it after the 2000 elections. Um, it was an area that people really didn't cover at all uh, as journalists until we recognized that the way elections are conducted can really have a major impact on the outcome. And I covered it just, I, I was starting uh, by covering the Help America Vote Act. And at that time, I got really intrigued by how elections were conducted, who conducted them, all the ins and outs of what made elections happen. And I just found it fascinating. I'm kind of a nerd, quite frankly, so I found it fascinating. And um, while there was a lot of coverage of the issue, uh, for obvious reasons, in 2000, uh, and, and also in 2001, Really, I would say over the next 10, 12 years, really, uh, journalists didn't cover it that much. Um, there would be some elections where problems arose, maybe with voting equipment or long lines um, when you did get some coverage. But quite frankly, I was one of the few people who covered it. I mean, I would go to meetings of, you know, the National Association of Secretaries of State, um, election officials, um, even the, the bipartisan commission that um, President Obama appointed uh, to look at the whole issue of long lines. I, I was really one of the few reporters who covered it. And, and it really wasn't until the 2016 elections that the issue of the fundamental role of elections and how democracy is run and just the mechanics became such an issue, in part because of president or then candidate Donald Trump talking so much about um, how the elections were rigged and the potential for voter fraud, and also the threat of when we went finally realized that there was this threat of foreign interference suddenly became a major focus of a lot of publications. I want to come back later and talk about the beat of election law or covering American democracy. But let's focus on what, what you've seen that's changed, in not in terms of coverage, but in terms of the elections themselves. 
even before Donald Trump, we heard lots about voter fraud and voter suppression, and uh, that really picked right. up after the disputed 2000 election. Do you think it's been more of the same, or do you think there's been a sharp change? You know, we, we heard the beginnings of the, the debate that we're having today has, in fact, been going on since 2000. And maybe before that, I, you know, was not around covering it then. It just was at a lo- much lower level. Um, so you're right. I mean, the, the whole issue of voter fraud, um, just dur- during the Help America Vote Act, which, which Congress voted on in the early 2000s, there was debate about people being on the rolls who were, you know, dead voters, um, the names of people on the rolls. There was a big story out of, of Missouri. I remember uh, Senator Kit Bond kept making a lot of speeches about, um, I think it was, uh, the name was... Uh, Ritzy Meckler, which who was a dog who was registered to vote in Missouri, and what an outrage this was. And it basically, it was somebody had done one of these voter registration drives and taken names out of the phone book and just registered, in fact, a dog. Um, so, so all these concerns about whether or not, um, well, the, both sides, you know, but both whether or not there were opportunities for voter fraud, and then whether or not there were measures put in place that were preventing legitimate voters from accessing the polls. Those debates have been going on all along. It's the, it's the volume of the debate and the extent to which it has totally um, basically divided the country in many ways. I think what one of the big things that has changed is election officials. One of the things that always kind of amazed me as somebody who covered government for many decades was how nonpartisan meetings of election, local election, and even state election officials were. That, you know, some of them were Republican, some were the Democrat, but they really, for the most part, were so nonpartisan and so committed to trying to make this an efficient process. And that has changed, too. I mean, not that they are more partisan, although some are, um, but the whole issue has become so politicized. So it's almost impossible for election officials to try and address the real problems with elections, some of the problems with access and voting equipment, without it being politicized. It's almost impossible to, to on a neutral way, try and fix things in the way that the, um, you know, that bipartisan commission that, that President Obama had appointed that was led by um, Bob Bauer and um, Ben Ginsburg several years ago were able to do. And to me, that's the biggest change. Uh, so, you know, we hear stories today about election officials under siege, uh, about election officials quitting. Um, you've been a reporter on the ground. Do you have a feel that things have gotten so politicized that people who've had a track record of running elections well are, are just going to abandon their positions and and leave it open to others who may not have either the same experience or the same commitment to running free and fair elections? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely that possibility. I'm not sure if it's going to be a wholesale um, abandonment by people who have been running elections in a nonpartisan way uh, for, in some cases, decades, that they're all going to leave. I do feel like there will be, and we're already seeing it, right? I mean, we're seeing, um, you know, a number of high-profile officials just saying the death threats are so extraordinary. I mean, that's something we would not have even 
um, conceived of even a couple of years ago that you have election officials who are just trying to do their job as public servants, having having people calling them up or sending them emails saying they're going to shoot them in the head, that they have to worry about their children. Um, it, it's just extraordinary. And that, that just shows you know, what, what obviously the, the division in this country. And, and the issue now is that, you know, there were always problems with elections. I mean, it's a, a big, complicated process, right? And in which we have, you know, hundreds of millions or tens of millions of people coming together on a given point in time, you know, casting votes for an election. I mean, it's a very complicated process. So there were always going to be some issues, right? But you now have it that no matter what the issue is, people are being accused of intentionally trying to subvert the process, these election officials. And, you know, it's just, as you know, pushed so many over the edge. I mean, the job has become increasingly complicated every year. You're not just dealing with making sure that you have a voting precinct and enough equipment and that your voters know who's on the ballot and that the ballots are counted correctly. Election officials now have to worry about threats from foreign governments. They have to worry about all the cybersecurity. Last year, they had to worry about a pandemic. Then you have to worry about, quite frankly, the pre former president of the United States already trying to undermine the, the election as illegitimate before it even happens. And, and quite frankly, a, a large sector of the American public that believes that. So all these things together, you know, are just unfortunately pushing too many people to the edge. And as, as you know, it's never been a, um, if in, in many, many communities, it's never been a highly paid position. And I think the combination of those things is really... Um, you know, a danger because you have the people leaving and we don't know who's going to take their positions. I want to focus in on the 2020 election in particular. And since you were covering that election, did you think that the election was fairly run? Did you see things that disturbed you about um, running elections during the pandemic, uh, running elections during a period where you had Donald Trump making these claims about fraud and, and mail-in voting. What grade would you give the 2020 election process? You know, from the perspective of the election administrators, I think they did an extraordinary job. They were gearing up for worrying about misinformation, worrying again about cyber attacks, worrying about foreign interference, and just misinformation in general. And then, of course, we had the pandemic. I mean, that was extraordinary to have to make all of these changes um, to accommodate a country that was in the midst of a pandemic, you know, and trying, you know, just the, just the idea of, of trying to recruit poll workers, enough poll workers. That's always a challenge. And to do it at a time when people didn't want to be out of their homes or with other people, you know, and they met these challenges. And then on top of that, you had obviously all of the legal challenges and the accusations that the election was unfair, all of the misinformation. And a lot of that actually did come out, I would say, after the election itself, after November 3rd. I think as a country, we didn't do so great in conducting our elections. And 
that was because so many people questioned it. So many people, um, you know, raised doubts about it and are still raising doubts about it. And obviously it led to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. So I think the, the, the people, the administrators, I would give them an A+. Plus. I think the country as a whole, I give kind of like a C. Is this a Donald Trump phenomenon or do you think that this goes beyond that? Or to, to phrase it another way, do you think that we're entering into a period where the very fact that we have free and fair elections is, is now going to be in question going forward? I do, yes. I do think a lot of responsibility lies with Donald Trump, but obviously he is tapping into a sentiment that a lot of people in this country do have where they are suspicious of institutions. Um, you know, he, 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 he played upon that. He exploited that. Um, he raised all these questions. But, and, and that's one of the things I'm, I grappled with as a journalist and now as just an American citizen afterwards and trying to figure out what is it that I can do to kind of help restore public confidence to elections we don't have just the issue of people believing the lies about the election. As one um, academic I was reading said, it's not really the question of why do these people believe the lies? It's why do they want to believe the lies? And there's something so much bigger going on than just the election. And I think that's what, something that we're all kind of grappling with right now. What is it and how do you address that? When I look forward to the 2024 election, I'm not only concerned about people's lack of confidence in the process, given all of this doubt that's been spread through disinformation, but also that some of the people who've been spreading the false claims about the election being stolen in 2020 could be the ones in charge of running elections in 2024. Right. One example is in Georgia, where um, Brad Raffensperger, the Republican Secretary of State, who famously stood up to Trump when Trump called him and asked him to find uh, 11,780 votes to, to flip the results, that uh, Raffensperger's considered the underdog in the Re Republican primary because he stood up to Trump. And, and one of the people running against him is a member of Congress named Jody Heiss, who has embraced Trump's false claims that the election right. was stolen. What is it going to mean for voter confidence and what is it going to mean for fair elections if we have the people running elections next time, some of them who have embraced these false claims of a stolen election in 2020? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely a huge concern, I think. I, I think, you know, this is, you know, to talk about, you know, the kind of the role of journalists, I think one of the most important thing would be to um, make it very clear to the public who these candidates are and where they stand for these elections. I guess the bigger question is, if the voters of Georgia do vote for her, knowing this, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean about whether or not Americans are very committed to the idea of free and fair elections? So that's kind of the issue that I feel like, you know, we as a nation need to grapple with. I think that really the most important thing for journalists is to cover these elections as much as possible and as transparently as possible so voters actually know what they're getting 
when they vote on these particular positions. Of course, this also raises the question of why do we have secretaries of state, people running elections who are in those elections, <laughs> running in those elections, is a, which is a whole other issue. So let's turn to the question of journalism. Um, you were the the pioneer or one of the pioneers on the democracy beat or the election administration beat. There are now many more people who are covering this, but probably not enough. How do you cover something like a kind of process story and make it engaging enough? And how do you think going forward, if uh, you're you're thinking about um, producers and editors and, and those who are planning coverage, what advice would you give them about how to cover these issues going forward from your own experience and from what you've seen uh, of others and how this stuff has been covered? Well, um, first, you're actually very correct that there are a lot more people covering it now. And one of the things that I think is wonderful is we do have a lot of new young reporters on this beat who I think have done an excellent job. The reporters who covered the audit in Arizona, people who covered some of the controversies in Georgia, um, Pennsylvania, Texas. We have some really good reporters. And, you know, it's, it's like all journalism. You know, you, you, you have to know your beat. You have to know what you're covering. So it's very important that reporters covering this understand how elections are run and understand, you know, all of the things that election administrators have to balance um, to, to make this process work. And I honestly have always found that people who run elections are more than willing to talk, were more than willing to talk to me. And we're just actually so happy to have somebody who was interested. (laughs) Um, It's important for the reporters to go to spend time in election offices just to see what the pro- how complicated the process is, and that it's a process basically run by people, including a lot of volunteers, and that it is a f- somewhat flawed process, right? You can't, you, you know, it's not perfect. And so the, 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 the story is to kind of distinguish what are the real issues that need to be addressed to make sure we have really fair, free, open elections, and what are the fake issues, you know, the issues that have been brought up for political reasons and the lies, and and to explain that to the American people. You know, one thing is we have like more than 8,000 election officials in this country. There's lots of people to talk to. (laughs) Um, And as I say, I feel like most of them are pretty open about that. And what about the issue of making it engaging? You know, one thing I know is that it's a lot easier to explain voter suppression to people or concerns about voter fraud to people than it is to talk about the risk of election subversion, the idea that the election could be stolen. I mean, start talking to people about (coughs) Article 2 of the Constitution and the Independent State (laughs) Legislature doctrine and their eyes can glaze over. So maybe this is not uh, something that's exclusive to elections. Maybe it applies to any technical area. But uh, what's going to make the coverage of this breakthrough? How can we get people's attention to these uh, existential issues of American democracy. I mean, well, one of the ways is to talk about some of these elections. Um, I think some of these, when you're talking about 
who is being put in charge of our elections and how might that be changing because of the laws. And one way maybe is to focus in on some of those. So maybe how, you know, some states have passed laws that might put oversight of the election in the hands of people who are appointed by the state legislature rather than a local official. Some of the examples of what, you know, you have very well pointed out could be election subversion uh, for future elections. When reporters start seeing evidence of that beginning to materialize, to do stories on that, but I think you're right. I mean, you have to do a very focused story on a particular, you you always have to give an example, I think. Um, and, And that's the only way that you can really engage the public on those stories. Um, it's, it is a little harder, you're right, when you're talking about procedure like election subversion. I've always found when you're doing stories about, you know, um, complications with voter registration or voter ID, those are a little easier to um, illustrate because you can always find somebody who maybe has problem getting an ID. You, you, know, you can help illustrate the stories that way. You can always find individuals. You're right, it's a little harder with something more um, procedural like election subversion. But if it really is a threat and an issue, there should be illustrations of how it is a threat. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I want to ask you one more thing, something you briefly mentioned. Uh, You know, you're talking about the real stories versus the fake stories. Right. How do you think journalists should deal with some people who put themselves out as election law experts who make false statements, um, who have shoddy empirical evidence to support claims, for example, that voter fraud is rampant or a major problem? There's always the desire, I think, you know, you're coming from NPR, which has a tradition of objectivity, but there's always a desire on the part of journalists to present both sides of an issue. But, you know, framing the voter fraud, voter suppression debate as a both sides issue runs into danger when there isn't good evidence to support certain claims that are made. So how did you deal with that? And how do you think that should be dealt with going forward without, you know, mentioning particular names? Yeah, and I think that that has become more and more of a concern um, in recent years because there is so much fake information out there or or blatant lies, quite frankly. And I I think that's what you you have to cover it like that. Well, if it's a lie, it's a lie. I mean, facts are facts. So you need, um, as a journalist, to say, okay, this is something that is factually based. This is not. I do, however, think you need to cover the debate, right? So I think you can't just ignore people who are lying about the election. I think that's part of the story, that there is this group of people lying about them. You can put it in the context of whether or not what they're saying is true or not. Um, you know, there's some people say, oh, you, should, you shouldn't even be reporting about them. But, you know, if it's resonating with a lot of people and having an impact on the process, I actually think that's part of the story. Some of my more interesting stories, I, I like to talk to people who really think that the process is is rigged and, um, you know, have issues about, I'd like to find out why they think these things and where they're at. I, I spent one time with um, these two women in Maryland who were, you know, they, they really thought that the voter rolls were totally filled with all this garbage, you know, all these, uh, you know, they were bloated with names of people who didn't, uh, shouldn't be registered, who had moved or who had died. 
And I spent this time, I sat with them, they're going through the databases and they're being shocked at seeing these names of people that they tracked and you know, how they actually did it. I just think that's important for people to know that there are these people out there who are really concerned about the election process. And some of their complaints are in fact legitimate. And I don't think you can ignore what people are, are saying, even if it's wrong. I think you just have to put it in the right context. You have to be well prepared for those interviews. Yeah, and that's why it's so important for the reporters who cover this beat to know the process and to really know how it works and what's going on. Because you're right, otherwise you would not be prepared to challenge some of the things that people are saying. Well, I want to conclude by just taking a, a few minutes and, and talking about your book. While you're covering elections and you're covering poverty, two huge beats, um, you managed to write a book called Carville's Cure, Leprosy, Stigma, and the Fight for Justice. Maybe you could tell me a little about that book, but start with the disenfranchisement of the people that you were covering in this book. Yeah, well, well thanks for, for bringing it up. This is an entirely different topic. Um, I came to this through personal reasons. My husband's grandfather was a patient um, at this hospital that the U.S. Uh, government ran in Carville, Louisiana. People who had leprosy throughout most of the 20th century in the United States, if you were diagnosed with leprosy, you were often sent to this hospital and confined there often for life, because there was no cure until the 50s or 60s, and few people know about this um, hospital. And it turns out, of course, that leprosy is one of the least contagious diseases. 95% of the human race can't get it. So when I found this out, I was like, oh my God, this is sort of an extraordinary, quite frankly, abuse of government power, and also the way we kind of use diseases to demonize people. But what you talk about, the disenfranchisement, and this, what, this one of the things that really struck me, when people were sent to Carville, Louisiana, to this leprosy hospital, you know, they not only lost their freedom, many of them were taken away from their families, their jobs, they, they changed their names, they lost the right to vote. Isn't that extraordinary? And it was because there was a law in the state of Louisiana that if you were in a resident or inmate of an institution in the state, you lost your right to vote. And that included patients in the leprosy hospital. So here you had people from all around the country, just because they were sick, went to this hospital, they were confined, and they lost their right to vote. And that was until 1946. And what happened was there were a number of veterans. They had fought in World War II. They'd fought in World War I. And they're like, I just got this disease. Many of them, they contracted it in service of the country and they lost the right to vote, which was absurd. And so finally the state legislature realized that this was, did not look so good. So they got the right to vote back. But it, it was one of many, many uh, things that the patients there went through. Well, it's definitely worth everyone picking up this book. Um, if only as a way to thank you for your really exemplary and helpful coverage of this issue for over two decades. Uh, Pam Fesser, thank you so much for joining the ELB podcast today. Thanks, Rick. I really appreciate it. And I also appreciate all of the help from you and, and, and other experts that helped guide me along the way. So I appreciate it. And I'm glad to know that uh, you're going to be part of our 
Fair Elections and Free Speech Center, and so your work in the voting area is not over uh, by a long shot. I hope not. Thank you. Thanks. The AOB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UC Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The producer of the AOB podcast is Melody Rowell. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.